Hi everyone. Before I get started into this episode, I wanted to give a bit of a content warning right at the top of it. Toward the end of the episode, this story is going to run into some issues with depression and suicide. So if you think these topics aren't for you, I won't blame you for turning off the episode right now or waiting until you're in the right headspace to listen. With that being said, let's get started. In TV and movies, there's this trope that I really loved growing up. It's the one where there's this child prodigy computer genius that's a hacker, and they're always looking to get that underground hacker cred. It's always so hilarious to me that the big score for them is usually the government or some kind of government-backed agency. Imagine a kid in their bedroom after school just casually hacking the FBI, or maybe NASA. It's just not something you see too often. Right? I'm your host, John Cordes, and for this story, I want to give you a bird's eye view of the life and death of Jonathan James, a legend in the hacking community, and tell you what the shell he did to get that notoriety. This episode, we're going to start our trip in 1983, in a small town in Florida called Pinecrest, just outside of Miami. Pinecrest isn't that large, with a population of just over 18,000. Its biggest historical fact at this point is that it was used as a staging area for the Overseas Railroad to the Florida Keys. I wanted to put that out there because, frankly, there isn't much going on here. But this is where our protagonist of the episode was born, and where he'd spend most of his life. When you think about your average kid in the late 80s and early 90s, Jonathan kind of fit the bill pretty well. He'd play video games, spend time at home with his family, and I kind of think that's where his interest in coding and hacking would begin. His father, Robert, was a computer programmer, so he had a PC in the house, which wasn't the most common thing at the time, and that's primarily how Jonathan would play video games. His dad knew he could place restrictions on the computer to limit Jonathan's time and his capability on it in order to keep him focused on school because his parents were concerned that this kind of distraction might negatively impact him there. So they tried to keep it away from him behind a bit of a locked door, so to speak, placing restrictions and parental controls where they could. Trying to get past that metaphorical lock and breaking the restrictions on the computer opened the door to more than just games for Jonathan, though. After he got a taste of what it was like to bypass that puzzle, he'd eventually start taking an even heavier interest into the back end of computers. Before he was even a teenager, Jonathan was exploring concepts like learning the C programming language, and what operating systems he could find beyond the Windows installation he had. In fact, in one interview he gave, his father would recall that there was a time when he came home from work and Jonathan had just installed Linux over the Windows installation that was already on the home computer. With this, I feel like I can relate a bit. He had such a passion for coding and learning about the ins and outs that he was just doing whatever he could to get his hands on it and keep moving forward. I remember when I was his age and I asked my dad to drive me into town on Saturday mornings when I was in middle school for programming classes. That ended up being one of my early ventures into security, coding, and a lot of cyber topics in general. So here he is just wanting to see what he can do and step up his game. At this point, he hasn't really done anything serious either, he's just been messing around with his home computer. That would end up changing a bit though, because Jonathan soon adopted a hacker alias called Comrade. That's Comrade with a zero, for what it's worth. 
Remember how I said his parents were a bit worried about the computer time impacting his grades? Well, it appeared for a while as though Jonathan was proving them wrong. He had been doing pretty well in school, actually. Until it was revealed that he was consistently abusing the school report card program by logging in and changing his marks to be passing grades. It's not really clear in any records or interviews how he did this, but my guess is that given the time this took place, he probably just either brute forced his way into the application or had a weak or stolen password. After all, people today still leave post-it notes with passwords lying around, and password security back then is a far cry from what it is at the moment. So, it was probably a little bit easier than you'd think to get in. The next step up in his game came from a hack on a phone company called Bell South. This was no relation to what we discussed in episodes 1 and 2 with Kevin Mitnick hacking Pacific Bell. It's just a similar MO and a similar company name. Although, the way this one was found out came in a form of a confession that he would end up making later in life. Bell South had known they were hacked, but it wasn't until Jonathan confirmed the details and that it was him that they were actually able to assign responsibility to him. Not much is really known on the breach beyond his confession and the likely exfiltration of some data, but this was more than just his home computer and his school. It showed kind of an upward arc to dangerous targets that would come to a head when he was just 15 years old. Now, I've touched on this before, but I think it's time for a small refresher. If you don't have access to credentials for a system, one other way to get in is to scan it and look for specific vulnerabilities that lay on the machine. It could be anything from an outdated system to an application that contains a major flaw. And this, in some cases, is as easy as just pointing a command line tool to the site you want to scan or a range of addresses. And that's the tactic that Jonathan used when he was 15, night after night, after school, in his room. He would look for any sites that had vulnerabilities that would let him bypass any security features that were in place. This is his 15-year-old life. But on June 29th, 1999, he hit the jackpot. There was a server out there that's firewall wasn't blocking him from getting some level of access. And once he managed to get in, he made sure he'd keep it by installing a backdoor. That backdoor let him come and go as he pleased without having to exploit the same vulnerability over and over again. It's kind of like a sneaky door that he could walk in anytime he wanted to, but only he knew about. The server he gained access to that night lived in Huntsville, Alabama. And more specifically, it lived on the NASA campus at the George C. Marshall Flight Center. To give you an idea of what kind of stuff they do at that flight center, the campus is directly responsible for not just government research on rocket engines, but also the creation of the comm systems for the International Space Station. There's some cutting-edge work coming out of that building, and a 15-year-old after school just managed to get in. It didn't just stop there. When he got into that server, a whole new set of servers and devices were accessible to him, and he was able to pivot to more than 13 other systems for access. If you're thinking about his compromise and his hacking, you can think about it like this. Pretend you're a homeowner, and you can lock the front door and lock all your windows. That would represent your security features. However, if you leave one window unlocked and a person snuck in through it, they would now have access to every room in the house that isn't also locked from the inside. It's a similar concept here, where the open window is the Marshall Space Flight Center server, and the other machines are rooms in the metaphorical house where 
they were unlocked or poorly locked, with security features that let Jonathan step right in. In addition to that first server at the Marshall Space Center, we know that he was also able to hack into the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, or DITRA. That division of the Department of Defense monitored threats that could come from anything that was nuclear to chemical, or even just regular weapons, and gaining unauthorized access to those systems was a pretty big deal. So now we're talking not just NASA, not just the International Space Station systems, but actual methods of defense detection. Jonathan has his hands in some pretty interesting things, and some pretty illegal things. So what does he do at this point? Well, like any fledgling hacker, he's going to snoop. He placed a sniffer on the network, and he started to lay low, intercepting what he could. All in all, his loot for this would probably include around 3,300 or so emails, and almost 20 sets of account credentials. In an interview with Frontline, which he originally did anonymously, Jonathan recalled that the government really hadn't taken much time or effort to ensure security here. He said that, quote, they lack some serious computer security, and the hard part is learning it. I know Unix and C like the back of my hand because I studied all these books and I was on the computer for so long, but the hard part isn't getting in. It's learning to know what it is you're doing once you're in. And those credentials and emails weren't the only loot he got. Jonathan also took the time to take some source code that he found as well. You remember how I said the International Space Station was a part of that space center? Well. Guess who now had a copy of the code that ran the station's physical environment, temperature, and humidity controls? Jonathan had a pretty big piece of software there. Part of a life support for the ISS? <laughs> it's insane to me that he was able to get that. NASA estimated the total value of the data that he stole was around $1.7 million. But what did Jonathan do with it? Nothing. This kind of takes me back a little bit to Kevin Mitnick where a lot of the hacks that he did, he was just doing to see if he could. He allegedly didn't do anything with the data, he just kind of took it, and that was it. Didn't destroy anything, just made his way in, saw what he could get, and came out. In that same interview from earlier, Frontline asked if he could have done anything with it, and he said, no, it was the environmental control program. Who wants that? You can play with an air conditioner, or what. The code itself was crappy, certainly not worth 1.7 million like they claimed, the only reason I was downloading the source code in the first place was because I was studying C programming. And what better way to learn than reading software written by the government? Now, that last line was probably in jest, I have to think, because I think a lot of us could probably think of better ways to learn than stealing C code from the government. But still, essentially, his motivations here were just because he could. He didn't do anything malicious with this information, he didn't sell it like someone else might have, he didn't even really run the code because he knew it wasn't worth anything interesting to him. So here's our main character, the teen computer genius. He's done it. He's given himself a cool hacker name, Comrade has compromised NASA, the DoD, and a slew of other hosts. He's living his best life, straight out of movies. Until January of the year 2000. The new millennia had quite a bit in store for him at this point. It turned out one thing Comrade didn't really pay enough attention to was anonymity. In hacking, there are always ways to tunnel your IP address through VPNs. You've probably gotten these kind of ads on other podcasts. They can help avoid and obfuscate the location of where you are. But somewhere along the line, he got a little sloppy. It turned out that 
NASA had been clued into the intrusion on their system and had been working with federal agents as a part of an investigation to find the culprit. At the end of that month, they had more than enough for a warrant. So on the 26th of January, 11 Defense Department agents and police from a Pinecrest Police Department busted down his door to arrest him. The agents were armed, wearing bulletproof vests and carrying rifles. A little bit of overkill if you ask me, because this kid's just a hacker, but they didn't really know that, and at the time, these kind of arrests were still in the early stages of really being understood how to handle. So it's not too surprising. They would seize several computers and a laptop, and take Jonathan into custody. At this point, he's still a minor too. He's only just 16 years old. That meant that there were a couple things working for him. His age, and the fact that the government wanted to know pretty badly how a kid could get into their networks. You have to admit, having a teen hack into what are supposed to be the most secure networks in the country kind of makes you look bad. And the news was spreading quickly that this kid hacked into what were supposed to be super secure systems. He was getting a hefty 15 minutes of fame at school, and pretty frequently, he'd talk to news and media about the experience. Occasionally, he'd even lambash the government for how easy it was to get into the systems. But despite the public goading of the law, James did what I think the smart thing was here and shifted gear into full cooperation mode. He knew that what he clearly thought was just fun and games were over, and that there were real consequences he was about to face. He explained to the investigators how easy it was for him to get into the machines because of a lack of proper attention from a security standpoint, and pointed out where they could beef it up. Personally, I think this part of a process lit a new spark for Jonathan, because at the end of an interview when asked what he was going to do about vulnerable technologies, he said that maybe one day he'd start a security company. I think he saw the legal route that he could have taken here to make a living doing what he loved. He'd have his cake and eat it too. Like I said, there were a couple things to consider working in his favor when they were working on sentencing him. He didn't do anything besides copy the data on hand. Nothing was deleted, nothing was destroyed, nothing was sold. He was basically a passive observer on the network. And while he did cause a two-day shutdown as a response measure for this, there was no loss of data or technology here. But NASA does equate it to around $41,000 in damages. And while Jonathan pled guilty, he didn't quite agree, saying that he thought the appropriate response would be perhaps to take his computers away like they did and leave it at that. They could tell him that he can't use the internet for a while to teach him a lesson, teach him that they actually do care about what he's doing, and that he shouldn't do it again. But they shouldn't really put them in jail, was what he thought. He went on to say that for him, it was just harmless exploration, non-violent, and that if he wanted to, he could have done a lot of damage but chose not to. Not quite the best argument he could have had, but I almost get it. He would receive charges of breaking into NASA and the DoD as a crime committed by a minor. The original sentence was to be house arrest and a ban on the use of computers for entertainment purposes. The law understood that he might need computers at some point, so he would only be able to use them for school or classes. Not only that, but he also needed to apologize to NASA and the Department of Defense in the form of a letter. And that one actually makes me laugh a little bit. I'm just here imagining a kid needing to write an apology to these government organizations, multi-billion dollar organizations, and I'm wondering whose job it's going to be to read those letters. I know what you might be thinking here, and that's that this is house arrest and what is effectively probation. I thought you said he went to jail. And at the top of the podcast, I did mention that he was the first teenager to go to prison for charges relating to computer crime. That's because 
he was soon detained by police for violating his house arrest, as well as a bit of use of drugs. The judge chose to change his suspended sentence to a real sentence, and ultimately he landed with a six-month stay in juvenile detention. This is a far cry from some of the other cases we've talked about, because if he was an adult, he would have received up to 10 years for that kind of crime. And we know at this time, they were still giving heavy sentences for it. But after his sentence, he fell off a radar. He went into a pretty secluded life in his parents' house. He had done his time, it appeared, and for all intents and purposes, his life of crime was over and he was done with the government. He'd eventually even enroll in community college to try to work his way into a legitimate career. But a few years later, it would turn out that the government wasn't done with him. Seven years later, in 2007, something big happened. Kiba, thank you. Breaking news now on a major identity breach. Bianca? Also tonight, Mark, there's new insight on the TJX security breach, the biggest known theft of credit cards ever. That series of massive hacks that happened targeted several major institutions, like BJ's Wholesale, TJX Corporation, Boston Market, Barnes & Nobles, and many more. The hack led to the loss of millions of credit card numbers and personally identifiable information of their customers, and it was one of the largest hacks of this nature to date. The primary hacker here was a man by the name of Alberto Gonzalez. And you might be wondering, if they have this guy, what does Jonathan have to do with it? Well, let's start with this. Gonzalez had a team that he was working with, and one of the aliases that the investigators had communication from went by the name of JJ. Gonzalez, also living just a short distance from Pinecrest and having had some previous communication with James, had unfortunately created a situation wherein it looked like Jonathan James was that JJ. That link was enough for federal agents to, yet again, barge into James's life. They would serve a warrant on his home, and during their search, they ultimately found nothing that could link him to the crime. The only thing of note that they found was a rifle, which was left behind because it was properly registered. It should be made clear that since being released from prison, Comrade, at this point, had fallen on significant mental health struggles. His father has told reporters time and time again that when he got back from prison, he struggled with mental health issues and depression, talking about how he was in a constant state of anxiety. When his father asked him if there was any merit to the accusation that he was a part of this at all, Jonathan said there wasn't. His dad just wanted to make sure because at this point he wasn't a minor anymore, so he would fall under the full penalty of the law if he was found guilty. That assurance that he was innocent and hadn't done anything wrong was the last conversation Jonathan and his dad would ever have. Because on Sunday, May 18th, 2008, Jonathan was found dead in his home from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. A gunshot wound from the same weapon that was not seized earlier by authorities. Jonathan had left a note behind. In his suicide note, he wrote, I do not believe in our justice system. Perhaps my actions today and this letter will be a serious signal to the public. But I have lost control of the situation, and this is my only way to fix it. To be honest, I have nothing to do with this whole TJX story. Even though Chris and Albert Gonzalez are the most dangerous and destructive hackers the Fed have ever caught, I am far more seductive to public opinion than these two random idiots. That's life. Remember. It's not that you win or lose, but that I personally win or lose by being in prison for 20, 10, or even 5 years for a crime that I didn't commit. 
this is my way of winning, but at least I'll die free. That was it. He believed that because he was loosely tied to this, it made for a better story that he would end up on the wrong side of a bars again. He'd lost all hope for any kind of a fair process and ultimately chose this course of action as a retaliation. The biggest kick to this is that it would eventually come out that JJ was not Jonathan James. It turned out that a frequent acquaintance of Gonzalez by the name of Steve Watt frequently used a pseudonym. And that pseudonym was Jim Jones, JJ. It's a bit of a tragic ending here. I wish I could tell you that he managed to stick it out and find out that fact. I wish that, like Mitnick before him, I could be telling you more about what he's up to now, but I just can't. It's a stark reminder of a darker time in justice for cyber law, when the burden of proof, or even what constituted proof, was still up in the air and a bit rigged in the game against hackers. Today, we have much more in the way of showcasing without a doubt that someone is attacking systems. Not only that, but the court of public opinion and knowledge has shifted in a way that, to many, this isn't nearly as scary to hear about as it used to be. There are more and more experts out there to debunk crazy cyber myths and keep cases like that to a minimum. They'll keep these cases grounded and more inclined to a fair trial. At the end of the day, I think that James shined a bright light that went out too quick. Most hackers know him. He was a self-taught guru of cybersecurity. With that, I'll leave you with this, a snippet of his obituary that I think described him pretty well after all my research was said and done. Quote, Jonathan will be remembered by friends and family as an exceptionally intelligent young man who never did anything by the book. A computer genius by all definitions of the term, he routinely astounded friends, family, and governments with his accomplishments. He will be sorely missed by his surviving brother, father, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, and many, many friends. I'm John Cordes. Thanks for listening to me explain what the shell happened to Jonathan James. That was a bit of a heavy episode. I had a bit of trouble writing the end there because I wasn't quite sure how to come out on the right note. So thanks for bearing with me on it. I want to thank everyone that's listening to the show and ask that you follow me at shell underscore pod on Instagram if you want to see more content. If you have any questions for the show too, I'm taking them there, or you can email it directly at shellpod at protonmail.com. More so, I just want to thank anyone who stuck it out from the last episode, which was the intermission. The tech issues have all been resolved, and I'm back to a normal cadence, so I'll see you in two weeks for another episode of What the Shell.